Welcome to the Brand Design Masters podcast, the show dedicated to helping you build the skills you need to design bulletproof brands for yourself, your business, and for the clients and customers you serve. And now, here's Philip. So welcome, everybody. Welcome back to the Brand Design Masters podcast. I'm your host, Philip Van Dusen, and today I am super excited because I am here with Will Patterson. And if you're a creative professional, Will Patterson probably needs absolutely no introduction. He's an exceptionally talented designer and hand lettering artist who specializes in logo type design. He's also the uh, the author of a book called Learn Calligraphy in 15 Minutes, which is available on Amazon around the world. I first came across Will when I was researching YouTubers, when I was just thinking of starting on YouTube. And I was looking at my competition in the design category and came across Will's channel. And um, I've been following his work for years now. I deeply admire what he's done to help creative professionals increase their knowledge and experience in design and freelancing. And he shares that with his, get this, 471,000 subscribers, whoop, whoop, and has over 630 videos. So if you need to know something about calligraphy design or design business, you can probably find it on Will's channel. So with that, I welcome Will Patterson. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, that was quite the introduction. Thank you, Philip. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, you absolutely deserve it. So I know that my listeners are tra- probably dying to hear all about how you have come, you know, to your career where it is right now. And I was, um, I was, I don't know where I was reading it, but or heard it. But you've you've really only been, uh, you know, kind of in your career for like ten or twelve years now. Um, yeah, about yeah, I'm 26, so about uh, coming up 10 years. Yeah, so that's totally insane to me. Number one, because I've been in this game for 30 years, and you have accomplished like incredible amounts by the time you're 26. So I'm totally impressed by that. So kudos for that. So tell Thank me you. a little bit about you know what what's that 10 year cycle been like? I mean, I was looking back at your YouTube channel, and you started YouTube seven years ago. So I mean, you were only three years into your career before you already started developing content. So you know, tell, talk to me about like tiny bit about the early days and then maybe what happened since you've been out of uni. Early days, I didn't do well at school. Um, and I had a friend who did design work for a few YouTubers that I was following. Um, and he's quite well known. And he was, he was posting on YouTube. He had like 10,000 subscribers back in 2010, which is quite a lot. Like nowadays, if you were to, if you were to equate that, that would be around about 250,000 um, compared to now, so he, he was he was quite knowledgeable in design. He did a lot of like GFX, so like game um, game graphics, if that makes sense. You know, all those high saturations, very blocky game stuff. But he was very talented at it, and he still does stuff in the game industry now, and he's very successful. Um, and that got me interested in design, as well as being at my church when I was younger. Um, there was a a few people in there that was doing design and I got to play around with doing posters and stuff. So I got interested from there. Now, when I went to college, I learned, I thought I was doing a business course. Um, and this college isn't a university. It's like further education when you're 16 in, in the UK. Um, so I went on this vocational course called business administration. And I basically found I was the only dude in the class. Um, and later on found out I was learning how to become a secretary um, whilst, like, <laughs> so I spent two years doing that, uh, even though it was a three-year course. And I just, when I was like 18, I quit because um, I wanted to do design. 
And, you know, I remember telling Naomi, who's my wife now, but back then she was a, um, a fiance, uh, that I wanted to do design and my parents didn't understand it. And I was like, oh, it'll be fine. I'll just, I'll just learn it. Instead of go to university, I'll just learn it at home. Um, so I spent the three years at home just learning um, design through basically back engineering other people's work, trying to read because I've got dyslexia, um, read as much as possible. Um, and then I sort of got to a point of where I wanted to do hand lettering um, because, well, I didn't know it was hand lettering at the time and I didn't know it was a massive community, but I didn't like any fonts um, and I couldn't afford any like expensive ones. So I was like, well, I'll just draw me out. Uh, so I started drawing like hand lettering and from there I got obsessed with calligraphy, which I used to do when I was a child. Um, and I started posting to, uh, YouTube, some tutorials of things that I couldn't find online. So if I was searching on how to do something, I would, um, I'd be happy if I couldn't find it. I was like, well, I'm going to have to learn it somehow. So I just did it myself. When I learned that, I would post it online as a tutorial. And it sort of went from there. Those were the early days. So I never really, I never actually went to university. Um, I'm completely self-taught in everything I do, but I don't like the word self-taught because I, I learned online through books, through, you know, books from the 1920s as well. Right. We've got loads of those. So very old school in when it comes to design, but using modern practices to do that. Yeah, I mean, I started as a fine artist. I have my master's in painting. And, I, you know, when I come to design and people say, how do you learn design? I, I hearken back to my painting days, you know. And when you're a fine artist, you copy the masters, right? You go and you copy things out of books. And as you're doing that, you realize how, when you're copying somebody, you realize what they had to do in order to get an effect or do something. And you can look at a book for days, but until you actually have to do it, you don't learn how what it took to do it right so when people come yeah. to me and say how did you how did, how should i learn design i say hey find some designers you really love and just recreate some of their works because you're going to you're going to learn so much about balance and design and typography and color that you would never know by just looking at a whole bunch of books yeah it's like the um i always use the analogy of a radio so i was the type of child and person that you could tell me the theory behind how the radio works and like all the electrical components, but I would work better just sitting in my room alone with a screwdriver and un like taking it apart and then trying to put it back together again. I never actually did that sort of stuff, but it was always like, that's the way my brain works. Is right. like, if I take something, obliterate it and then put it back together, then you start to know through practice, even though you may not know the terminologies of how things work. And that's how like, I think the self-taught community works, if that makes sense. Yeah. So where did you where did you start picking up clients? Oh, this is a tricky one. So I posted on my portfolio. So during those three years of when I was uh, learning, um, I had no clients. I had one, actually. It was my neighbor. Um, and I still see the logo every day. And I still think it's pretty good. Like, even though there's, <laughs> I, I'd love to change it. And it was only uh, back then it would have been like $100 I charged for it. Um, but I started picking up through, uh, obviously, being on YouTube, what happened was is I uh, backlinked my portfolio. So I was creating blog posts, um, and I also used fake company logos that I was doing. So I would just, for fun, I would create a whole brand and put it on Behance. Um, and then 
that my thought process back then, no one told me, but I just thought, well, no one's going to know if it's fake and who cares if it's fake. If they can see that I've done it and that I can show how I solved a problem, then surely people will hire me. So what I did was I just did that and basically through YouTube and through targeting over the years, certain client bases uh, and industry, sorry, um, people just came to me and just wanted the work. I guess YouTube does have a, a large part to play in the marketing of what I do as a designer because obviously now we're in a position where we could stop client work and it would be it'd make my life a lot easier. Um, but I don't want to do that. I want to stay relevant. But yeah. the the idea of like client work, I think a lot of people assume that it's YouTube only, how I get clients. But you know, we've worked and I've spoken to like some really crazy uh, popular people online just through my Instagram and my portfolio on Behance without them even knowing I do YouTube. You know, so everything that I put out is uh, intentional to a certain group of industries that I want to work with. So I'll never post work that I'll never want to do for someone else. And if I do, you'll see it disappear very quick from my feeds everywhere. Everything I write, everything I do, even like now I'm, I, my personality changes from podcast to YouTube because this is like the real me. Yeah. <laughs> YouTube's a more exaggerated version of me. Um, but that's just the way it is. So that's how I picked up clients, basically. It's, it's, it's a long story. I've got a webinar happening soon about that, um, about how I target people. Um, but that goes into a whole rabbit hole of like, you know, what I do. <laughs> All right. I want to I wanna come close to the opening of the rabbit hole, though, because I thought that I totally keyed into that when you said, even at the very beginning, when you said you were targeting specific industries with your, you know, your your fake work that you were putting out there, how were you targeting, you know, did, were you starting an email list? Were you doing that through email? Were you doing that through LinkedIn? How are you actually targeting businesses that were going to buy your stuff? So I wasn't actually forthcomingly targeting them, like saying, I'm going to push this to you. I was just creating content that that would appeal to them through my portfolio. So if I wanted to be working for a small company, so here's a good story. If I, if I wanted to work for a, a company like a, a leather maker, for instance, um, you know, small craft companies, which I did, I worked with them a lot. Um, what you, what you can see is about four years ago, I was posting a lot of vintage logos, and these companies love them, and they're very effective uh, for small, uh, you know, craft companies. So, what I would do is I would just post vintage photos on Instagram, like or illustrations, hand lettering. Um, on my portfolio, you would see a lot of logo types based around the 1930s to 60s. So you will see a lot of them, and then from that these companies would see it through by just typing it in because I wouldn't just post them. I'd do a case study as well. So I'll get the keywords in there. Um, and then Very smart. they would obviously, there'll be a funnel system of they would see that, then they probably would find my YouTube and then they'll probably find my Instagram. Then they would be like, oh, I, I trust this guy. He knows what he's doing. Um, and then that's how I targeted in one way. And now you see, I don't really post many vintage logos anymore because my target's changed. Mm. So I'm going for the upper end. So I'm going for like corporations. And that's the way that I've targeted over the years. This episode of the Brand Design Masters podcast is sponsored by Bring Your Own Laptop. 
byol.me is a top-tier Adobe application video training website featuring Daniel Scott. Daniel's a certified Adobe trainer and keynote speaker at the Adobe Max conference every year. At byol.me forward slash Philip, you can learn everything from the basics to advanced aspects of your favorite Adobe applications, all for one low monthly subscription fee. Visit byol.me forward slash Philip, P-H-I-L-I-P. Again, that's byol.me forward slash Philip. I just know you're going to be amazed at Bring Your Own Laptops courses. So one of the things that you said that I thought was really important to highlight is that you weren't posting work that you didn't want to get. And I used to be on the AIGA's portfolio review board in San Francisco and looked at thousands of people's portfolios just coming out of school. And the one thing about portfolios right when you're getting out of design schools, they all look the same, right? They all have the exact same projects. They all are the smattering of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of everything. One of the pieces of, of advice I give to designers when they're just getting out and moving into the market is that don't show work that you don't want to get. You know, have your portfolio revolve around the work you want to get. Because if you're showing like a little bit of banner website design, but you don't want to do, you know, web advertising, don't show it, you know. And it's hard at the beginning. So I think that it sounds like to me that because you were self-taught and because you were generating your own portfolio for the very beginning, rather than having some school-generated project portfolio, you were able to kind of target and develop the sort of work you wanted to get from the very beginning. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I've spoken to universities before, and I've told them, uh, just bin your portfolio from the university and start again. So when you leave university, um, the the time of when you leave could either be a holiday or it can be the foundations of the clients that you get. So mm. a mantra that I live with, as well as, 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 as well as many others, is the work I do today will get me paid in two years' time. So what I'm getting paid now is what I did two years ago. So like everything that you do now has to be intentional towards two years down the line, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I think with portfolio stuff, it's for me... It was, I will put what I want to put out online because there was no pressure. Um, I mean, there have been portfolio stuff that I've put on and then now I go, I don't want to work on that. Um, So I'll just, you know, quickly take it off. And that's the way it works. (laughs) You know, right now you are, you said something that I keyed into because I'm very much balancing client work with my content and my, my brand and community work courses, et cetera, like that right now. And it's, it's always been a struggle since I started developing content, my newsletter, my YouTube channel to find the balance between client work and all the content work that you do. Because I know it's not easy to develop content. It's very time-consuming. How do you find that balance? Uh, It's changed over the years. So um, I used to work at my parents. I had a room in my parents. And you can see it. It's my first like office room in my videos that you can see. Um, And it was like an office that I I would live like in an apartment down the road. We live in a very small town. Uh, and I would go back up every day and I'd work there. Then I'd go home. The, the reason why I'm saying that is because it, it has an influence in how I work. Um, then I moved house with my wife and we got this other place with the spare bedroom where I do all my work. And from there, I would just spend all day working, doing content and you know doing design work. And then now we're in an office um, where things have changed. But back in the first stage... Um, it would just be, I would have a to-do list 
of I need to plan a video today, record a video today, and edit it today, upload it. Um, I also have like a meeting with a client and I have to do the logo design. And then when I come home and everything's done, I would do some hand lettering and maybe do some, uh, put something out on Instagram. So it was like an unhealthy balance of too much stuff. Um, and you can really see, because that's when I, I really grew. But the downside to that was that it can affect your mental health quite a lot, trying to grow all the time. And, you know, and that came out of a place of comparison, looking at um, other people with, you know, 15 people working on um, all the content. And then there was just me. Now we're in a position where we have like an office studio and we've got uh, this dude called Jordan who works at One Five Media, um, who does like our videos, he edits them. Um, so all I have to do is record now a couple of videos and then he'll edit them. I can do my client work. I can do my hand lettering if I want to. So over the years, it's sort of like, I've I've come to know when I need help. Also, Naomi works with me. She's uh, the um, director, but she manages what I do. So she's like, oh, telling me what needs to happen when. Um, and then basically, all I do is just do the the work that you see online. But in fact, it's got like a few other people working on it at the same time. So I think, you know, managing my time and my work life balance is is greatly improved over the past year since lockdown um, because of the building that we're in, simply because of that and because of Jordan as well. So it's it's hard to explain, but there's a lot. There's a lot. <laughs> when were you able to make that? And that, that was a, a tough jump for me as well. When, I, you know, when you make that jump from doing it all yourself to eventually being able to afford a team to start being able to offload. And as soon as you can do that, your capacity obviously doubles, triples, and so you can put out more. But there comes that time where, you know, do you have the money to afford to pay someone to increase my bandwidth? What was that decision like for you, and when did that happen? There's a couple of different things. My, um, I was telling Naomi that, because the thing is, Naomi's really good at getting work for me. <laughs> She's <laughs> incredibly good. Um, so what would happen is, she would get me work, like, or a sponsor, and they want a video, you know. And what, what happens is generally sponsors want us to put out videos at certain times. Um, so I would have like client work, meetings, and then videos that had to be done. So it was kind of like a bit of a mismatch. Um, and we, I found that, you know, I wouldn't do some videos because I had to compromise and do client work. And then I'd be late with client work because, uh, you know, I had to do videos. So what was happening is we were losing money. Because uh, we had a good problem, which was that there was too much. So when I found, so when we found out, you know, uh, we were, we were losing money, and obviously, my, like I'm working myself to the bone, and I'm not enjoying what I'm doing. Um, I said it's time to uh, get Jordan in and do some, you know, hardcore editing. He's just raving his hands over there right now. <laughs> it, the money wasn't really a, an issue for me. It was more like, you know, if we get Jordan in, and you know because we are growing our team, we're employing someone else very soon. Um, we found that whilst John's editing, I'm doing another thing. So it obviously it's an exponential growth happening right there. Um, spend money to make money sort of thing. So you said that Jordan, you said he's right, is he right across the room right now? 
Yeah, he's just over there, COVID safe. He's like seven meters away from me or something. He's just okay, so I mean, that's that's an interesting point. So you didn't use, you know, you had Naomi and you didn't, but you didn't use VAs or distant people. You hired physical people who were going to sit in your studio and they're all on your team and they're close by. Yeah, so like the reason for it is Jordan's not here every day. He's here once a day, a week. Um, and then the rest of the week, he's editing the videos. So we record most of our videos once in the day, like once a week. The rest of the week is like me doing planning for like products, client work, meetings, sponsor meetings, hand lettering. Um, and then all the ideas, generally speaking, and Jordan's going to shake his head, I will record on the day that Jordan's in. Um, and like Jordan will sit here and then throughout the week, he'll do that. Because he lives about an hour away from me. Um, John's probably freaking out because we're talking about him so much. <laughs> He's going to want to listen to this after. Um, so yeah, like we we could have gone online, but there was it didn't make much sense. I'd rather have someone here who can help give me advice for video as well, such as the set and the sound and um, the camera. And also because it's locked down, if I'm working with my wife, it's nice to have someone in. <laughs> And your set's looking pretty awesome, by the way. I've noticed the evolution in your set is looking quite quite nice these days. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, when did when did sponsorship start to happen? Doing brand deals. I can't remember. I remember my first one was I can't remember even the company, but they just said we'll give you this amount for uh, a video, and then they said, "Can you do it again?" I said, "Yeah." Then I realized, <laughs> oh, people want me. And then I think I was the first ever sponsored person for Skillshare. Um, that's a, that's something first ever. Wow, that's amazing. For or like first ever um, YouTube sponsor for Skillshare. Okay, I think I think they had a podcast sponsorship before, um, and it was through Famebit. If you remember what that was, it was like a, a company that is now owned by YouTube, but I think they demolished it. Mm. Um, and basically, they they came to me and said, "Let's see how it goes." And all these companies tested me in the channel. Um, and we got good conversions and people enjoyed the video content. And it just went from there. And now we don't really know why companies like us, but I guess we are just very brandable. I think we were safe on YouTube as well. We don't swear. Our controversy is funny if we do have it. Right. You know, and it's all intellectual controversy as well. It's not like, you know, political or religious or anything like that. So we, we're very much like lighthearted and I, I've got a mission. And when brands see that you've got a mission and you know what you're doing, they're not worried about you messing up and tartaring their name, you know? Yes. What What is that decision-making matrix for you when you're deciding on what brands to to sponsor or what deals to make? Because, I mean, I know that when you, when you start endorsing anybody, your audience will judge you on who you're deciding to promote. So did you get any pushback from your audience when you first started to promote and they were and it was obvious that you were actually promoting something that you wanted people to buy? Yeah, back in the start, yeah, people like back then it was different than it is now. There wasn't really cancel culture back then. Um so the people didn't like it and they said, Oh, we don't like these adverts. So I just told them to get lost. Um <laughs> it's like there's nothing wrong with seeing an advert. Um if you want free content. Yeah, you got to pay up somehow, right? Yeah, and I, I feel like don't mind adverts. If you don't like it, then boo-hoo. Um, so, yeah, I got pushed back from that. Uh, the, the way that I discuss or how I uh, work out what sponsor we want to take, generally we get like um, two or three sponsored 
emails probably every two or three days. So probably once a day, we'll get like someone who wants to sponsor us for something. Um, and a lot of the time we say no. But if there's a company that fits the brand like that we want to work with, such as you know Skillshare, Squarespace, FreshBooks, all these different companies, then we'll say, yeah, we'll, we'll help because they've got something relevant for our audience. One that we've recently done with Fiverr got a lot of pushback because there's this unethical side to Fiverr uh, on YouTube with a community of designers who <clears throat> probably don't understand my um, points going into it. So that's probably one of the downsides is when you uh, work with a sponsor such as Fiverr, uh, people can like sort of cancel you out and try to ruin the videos because I'm promoting a service that's taking their jobs, um, if that makes sense. So yeah. That that is one thing. I've made a I did a live stream the other day talking about why I didn't like why why we did it and why I hasn't taken their jobs. Uh but that's um probably an argument for a later date for a lot of other people. But yeah, I think sponsorships ethically, we would never be sponsored by someone who we truly believe would ruin an industry. We like sponsors who disrupt industries, such as fresh books. Mm-hmm. Um, such as Fiverr, um, such as Squarespace and Skillshare, because they bring stuff to people who can't afford it, like otherwise without that company. So, and because a lot of our audience are in India, uh, we like to do that. So we we like to bring a lot of these sponsorships to those uh, types of people who may not be able to afford it. Uh, if it was like a gun company or someone else, you know, I wouldn't, it would be a straight up no. Yeah, <laughs> if that course. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But that's my ethical side to it. If it damages or hurts someone or a group of people, then no. If I don't believe it does, then I'm I'm cool with it. And as long as it fits within our audience. So it can't just be like, I don't know, a light company, yes. which they have tried to sponsor. And it's like I know, me too. You get these random requests to sponsor. It's like we we, you know, we do tables and you're like, what? What? You know, how am I gonna well, do, do that? that? I did do a sponsorship for a table. You did? <laughs> yeah, I did. Well, it wasn't really sponsorship, I mean, they just gave me one and I shouted them out. Because a lot of people were just like Say, do you want a standing desk? I'm like, yeah. Well, that's different. Standing desks are different. I'm at like a coffee table. I'm like, yeah, this is my favorite design coffee table. There it goes. His desk is going up. I could do that to mine too, but I'm afraid I would like screw up my camera and stuff. (laughs) I was scared that I would knock over my camera. Standing desks are the best. Now, chances are many of you listening might have first come across me via my YouTube channel. Building my presence on YouTube has done more to build my personal brand than any other platform. So I want to share with you the one resource that was critical in growing my channel. It's a YouTube plugin called TubeBuddy. TubeBuddy is a freemium browser extension that you use to manage and optimize your YouTube channel videos. It saves a massive amount of time doing the mundane tasks like adding cards and managing your video descriptions. But it also provides incredible value through its video analytics, showing you data about your competitors' videos that's absolutely invisible without it. It also helps with adding metadata to your videos so they show up better in search. If you want to take your YouTube work to the next level, you have to get TubeBuddy. You can support this podcast by signing up through our affiliate link. Just go to TubeBuddy.com slash Philip Van Dusen. It's easy to remember. Just type in TubeBuddy.com slash Philip Van Dusen to check it out. 
By adding TubeBuddy to your video workflow, I guarantee you your channel will grow much, much faster. Just go to TubeBuddy.com slash Philip Van Dusen and sign up for TubeBuddy today. So you did a video that I, I I always like to go on people's channels that I admire, and I sort, number one, by date. So I look at their absolute oldest videos because I love doing that because it's incredible to see where people came from. And then I also sort by most popular. And when I did that with your channel, I real, there was a video you did where you paid five designers. You were just talking about Fiverr. You paid five designers on Fiverr to design the same logo, and you got 1.9 million views on that. And I know the kind of revenue that a 1.9 million view video brings in, which is pretty sweet. But I'm also kind of interested in what happened What happened in that video. Um, basically, we, we got some good logos and some bad ones. Um, like the whole idea of the video, it was a sponsored video by Fiverr. So, oh, it was? Uh, okay. Yeah, so Fiverr asked me to do that. Um, I mean, I'll let everyone know. It's uh, at the start of the video, I thanked Fiverr and all that, you know, all those guidelines. Okay. Um, but the idea of it was um, Fiverr wanted me to choose five designers, uh, see how it goes. Um, obviously, they wanted to make sure these designers weren't scam artists. Mm -hmm. um, because as you know, on Fiverr, there's a lot of people that can scam. So you just got to be careful. So we, got, uh, we chose five. They approved the five people. And we found that in these different prize points that... Some of them were really good. Some of them were bad and they were charging too much. And some of them, um, well, technically all of them were charging too little. And that was the main thing that I was trying to get across is in for $165, you could have charged, you know, thousands of dollars for that one logo. And, you know, you've just like lost 100% of your revenue there of what you could have made if you just priced yourself differently. Mm -hmm. um, so the whole point of the video was to say, these designs are insane and they need to up their prices. And also what, what I always say, you know, with clients who come to us um, or potential people that say, you know, oh, well, we can't afford your pricing. I'll just say, go to a different designer. And then if you're only looking for a logo for five to $10, go to Fiverr. Because like, you're not my client. Uh, you're a Fiverr client, if that makes sense. Totally does. So you, the topics that, you, you know, as you were starting off, as you said, you did a whole lot of videos on stuff that you were trying to learn, but you couldn't find anywhere else. And then, mm -hmm. I, you know, recently you've been, you've really been expanding your kind of content. So I, you just recently did a video on imposter syndrome. And mm -hmm. so you're getting into sometimes the more business side, the psychological side, a broader range of kind of freelance or entrepreneurial topics that touch creative professional lo people's lives. So what is your, what's your content development um, kind of, uh, you know, funnel like right now? How do you get the ideas that you want to want to do videos on? Um, yeah. So generally speaking, um, I'll pull Naomi and Jordan around. We've got a whiteboard in the office now. And at the start of this year, when we came back, um, I made a presentation to sort of show John and Naomi the, the health of the channel, what went well. So we we took like two or three hours um, looking into that and I was presenting the numbers and why things were the way they were. So we were doing data-driven, um, like there's a meeting about data-driven content. So this year, what we're doing is we're trying to find what people are looking for, um, but also doing things that I know that I want to do. Um, so the funnel kind of goes like, I will have an idea 
of like what someone wants to know and I'll write it on the whiteboard and I'll come up with like I'll just create a list of keywords of that video um, and then that will spread out into another video idea, then another one, and then another one. Um, so the imposter syndrome one came from um, an Instagram post that I put out. And the reason why I put that one out is because a lot of people didn't understand imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, a lot of people are ashamed to admit that they have imposter syndrome for some reason. Um, so I put it out and then people really liked it. And because it wasn't so specific to the design industry, I was like, well, this is great for designers and entrepreneurs and, you know, people who have achieved something. Um, so I made a video about that. Of course it doesn't do as well as my other videos. Um, but the whole idea this year of the reason why things are sort of changing is because we're pivoting from, um, treating beginners to giving experiences to more professionals because we've got a lot more than we can offer. And I think, you know, beginners are great um, and I want to keep doing that, but I want to show myself now as more of uh, someone who can teach professionals. Beforehand, the thing that was holding me back was the fact that, you know, the the other people doing that are twice my age. So like... Hey, watch it. Be careful. Careful in your... Careful where you're going with that. <laughs> also, about, you know, the great like, people like Chris Doe. He's like literally twice my age, which is not a bad thing. It's just, you know, what have I got to offer my expertise? Like, is in, I am just starting my agency now. So it's like, should I be teaching this? Um, and what I found along the way is, you know, oh, wait, I could show my process. So instead of being a guru, I could be more like a guide where I can guide people um, and on a journey instead of telling them where to go. So Nowadays, I'm trying to pivot into more of the professional realm while still holding and captivating my beginner audience. So it's more like taking them from beginner and shoving them into like, you know, stop doing these bad habits and, you know, get your payments higher, you know, gain better clients. How do you do that? Um, Stuff like that. Things that I was scared to do before because people wouldn't understand. Um, but yeah, that's the reason why. So we're sort of pivoting this this year. And I didn't mean to offend you about your age. I mean, you don't look like you don't look old at all to me. So you're fine. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're what you're doing is you're 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 teaching people who are five steps behind you on the path as you are growing and maturing and getting more wise in terms of your business and what you're doing. Your content and the focus of your content is obviously expanding. That's what it sounds like. Generally, yeah, that's the the main thing. I want to expand it into more of the professional stuff. And as I said, I do videos that people have already done um, because I've got different opinions um, right. and a different a different way of saying it as well. You know, there's no real original message, is there? No one's ever come out with something so groundbreaking. All there is is original people saying it. So like the unique person. So I want to have my unique, I want to be the unique messenger, not the message, if that makes sense. So people can understand it a bit more. I'm far more eloquent on video when Jordan's edited me. So like, podcasts are always the best bet for getting information out of me. There's a lot of <laughs> stuttering and things happening. Yeah, I know. You realize how much you say, um, and you know, and all that sort of stuff, which totally drives me crazy whenever yeah. I listen to myself. It's a nightmare. So you've had, you've had an amazing, you know, 10 or 12 year run so far. And so 
you know, you've you've come to an incredible place where you are right now, Will, and I have to admire you for that. But I want to talk a little bit about your struggles. I know you must have had struggles or, you know, sandpaper rough patches where things weren't going as well. What kind of, you know, what kind of challenges have you had to overcome within this journey? Well, one of them is like just content on YouTube. Is in YouTube can be very demoralizing. Mm. Um, because talk about that. You know, why? Why? I guess the number system. It's all a game. So YouTube is just a big game. All all my job is is a game to me. It's like making money isn't really. It's just fun. Um, and I'm a very competitive person. So when YouTube happens, they've got these like analytics that you see. You, you must look at them often. Yeah, I look sure. at them far too much. Um, and you know, one of the struggles is basing your happiness and your security on the green arrow. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, and funnily enough, I did explain this to my partner manager, and they changed it like two weeks after. So I was like, they really change it all the time. Do you use, do you use TubeBuddy or anything like that? Do you use any analytic plugins like TubeBuddy or? I use VidIQ. Okay, same kind of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same thing. I just I use it only for tags. Like it's far too expensive for just tags, but it's so easy. Um, so yeah, like the analytics has been a bit of a struggle for me. Client work wise, I don't think I've had too many struggles with it. I've had um, points of where really famous people have wanted me to work with them. Um, on like just random projects and then and it never came to fruition. So that was struggling. I was struggling with that um in some areas. And I guess, you know, imposter syndrome again, just confidence is, is difficult because I can look confident online on YouTube saying stuff. Um, because I am, I'm confident about that of what I'm talking about. But then at the same time, I'm like I get this feeling of, oh dear, I'm only 26. Like I can't be, I can't do, <laughs> what am I, what am I doing? And then also the struggles of like the future is in like, um, is this sustainable? You know, there's that constant worry of, you know, I can work myself out of the worry. You know, if I just gain a little more money or, you know, if I just get to this milestone, everything will be fine. When yeah. in reality, all that milestone does is make you see the next peak of the mountain. It just moves. The goalpost always moves forward. You will. That's it. It's will, just a it journey. Will always, yeah, absolutely. And I have to say also, I've worked with a lot of, I do a lot of coaching of executives and mm-hmm. their imposter syndrome actually is even more prevalent in people who have incredibly, incredibly high levels of accomplishment. You know, SVPs, CEOs of companies. I bet. The, the imposter syndrome in CMOs is like absolutely crazy. I think also it has to do with, um, you know, today's culture of comparison, you know, that we also, it, it's it's so much easier to see where other people are. And the other, the other thing about it, and this is the thing that drives me crazy about Facebook, is you're only seeing the, uh, you're only seeing the, the you know, the perfect moments of someone's life or the perfect moments of someone's career or those, you know, those those success, you know, shining lights of some, you know, accomplishment that they've made. You don't see all the struggles. You don't see all the stumbles, right. all the down days. And that's why I always like to ask people, you know, in my podcast, like where they've struggled. Um, because I think it's really important for people to hear because that's what they need. They need to understand that when they're struggling or when they're, you know, really... Uh, uh, you know, kind of wrestling with something that that that's normal, you know? Yeah, 
I think so, yeah. I think it's it's the major thing. You know, struggles. I think imposter syndrome, what I've worked out already, in my mind, it's hard to articulate. I'll just move that. Um, is that generally uh, when we get to a point of like where people see us differently, uh, we sort of think, why am I not like feeling like he must feel? Mm-hmm. So, for instance, you talk about, you know, CEOs, SSOs and stuff like that. Um, they must like, have the same thing of like, I don't act like the CEO that this guy is over there. You know, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm a CEO because I don't act like him online. You know, is this what it was meant to feel like? And we question it and compare ourselves. When in reality, everyone's just got this, you know, mask on and they're putting on a show. And that's all it is. And I think people need to realize we're all human, like no matter what position you're in. If you just realize, and I tell people online the other day on the live stream, that people who say hurtful comments, that personal hurtful comments online and stuff, the reason why they do it is obviously there's some trolls. But other people just forget that you are human. Like mm-hmm. they just think that you are at a position where you can take it and, you know, they just, all the humanity in that person is gone because they've become more of this like idolized product or an aspiration, if that makes sense. And that's what idols are, aren't they? You know, which is, which is wrong. So yeah, I think big, big struggles in my career have been, you know, people. I just don't, I'm an introvert. I'm not extroverted at all. Um, so comments and you know, just struggling with the um, YouTube, worrying about that anxiety. There's a lot, but I just have to remind myself, you know, we're only human. Like, and what's the worst that's going to happen? <laughs> exactly. Well, I always try to, I mean, no matter what, whenever I get one of those hurtful, mean comments, it's I always take the high road. So I respond to almost all the comments I get. And so I always just, you know, try to take the high road and there's no winning a flame war. And yeah. the other thing is you never know where people are coming from or what's going on in their lives when they leave a comment like that. And lots of times I've responded with something really nice or really open and saying, you know, I, I if, if there's something I missed, I'd love to hear your suggestions or something, you know, take the high road. And I've had so many people come back to say, I'm really sorry about that comment. I was having a really bad day. I didn't mean to take it out on you. So it's like, you never know what people are going through, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah, it's... That's the thing. Some people will just like spark at you. I've had it on Twitter with someone recently. Yeah, they'll just spark at me, and then they forget that you're human. But you, at the same time, you know, if someone is nasty to you, it's okay to, you know, put them straight. A little bit of ping. But, yeah, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but at the same time, understand that they're probably just having a bad day. It's like you know, the spider is more scared of you. That's interesting. Yeah, I like that. I like that analogy. So what do you see on the future for our industry right now? You know, you're on the cutting edge. You're, you got your finger on the pulse. What, what's inspiring you these days? I think the space age, uh, which sounds like I'm a massive space nerd. Um, I, well, you've had a good couple of weeks then. <laughs> with, yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's happening now is, you know, with like I, I look at Elon Musk as my biggest inspiration, even in design just because of the choices they've made. Um, for instance, all the Falcon rockets look futuristic mm-hmm. and there's no design purpose other than to make humanity think forward. Um, as well as the spacesuits they make, they make them look super cool and futuristic to make people look forward uh, into, into the future to see where we're going to Mars and stuff. So I think 
for me anyway, like my inspiration for what's happening is future thinking. So not being afraid, kind of like being Elon and making or designing something that is not readily, um, but people aren't readily used to, kind of like the Cybertruck that he made. Like I would love to do like something like that with my work. You know, people think that's cool, but it's like super weird. Yeah, a little scary, a little weird, right? Yeah. Threatening. Threatening, yeah. So like something that makes people actually stand out. At the same time, I just want to improve. I, I inspire to just, you know, not make massive leaps, but just do little little steps towards improving. The industry, I think the way that it'll look as well, to answer your question fully in the next few years, <clears throat> um, a lot of VR-based stuff. We're seeing a lot of technology that dictates design. So we're going to see a new set of designers um, who will be like UX VR, um, and they will specialize in brand experiences because once we have those glasses on and advertisements are popping our way, which is the sad reality, unfortunately, in probably like 20 or 30 years, um, there will be people who have to create adverts and icons that people can look at without actually directly looking at them and, you know, all this. Stuff. So there'll be a lot of user experience with virtual reality and uh, augmented reality happening. So that's why I think Adobe is going really pushing really heavy on that because they're starting to see companies are making virtual glasses, you know, all these different technologies. Foldable phones are happening. So screen technology. When screen technology changes, the designers have to worry about their jobs because <laughs> as soon as it changes to something, such as the invention of the screen, meant that people who were you know typewriting, people who made paper. You know these different things. Oh yeah, rub on rub on type. You know, I mean, linotype machines. Whenever technology yeah. comes, it's like the industry changes. That's it, and that's the design industry. It's always changing. So I'm always, I'm, I'm looking at being more useful in twenty years' time. So I'm just like looking at that, what we could have, and what we probably will have, and basing a, a lot of my time and effort into make sure what I design today, it will work then as well. If that makes sense, it's kind of hard to explain. It's all sort of... No, I think you've articulated it really, really well. And I completely agree with you. I went to a, uh, I went to a VR conference about five years ago at the Javits Center, a huge, huge conference in New York City and experienced you know those headsets for the first time. And I came away and I wrote like five blog posts and three articles on how the world was going to change because I was so blown away by what I, I saw there, and it was only really in its infancy. And I think you're totally right in terms of the fact of how design is going to have to address that. I think branding and brand experience is also going to have to address that because when you have those headsets on, you know, as a brand, let's say Nike, say you're Nike, instead of just kind of showing a picture of a shoe and showing a picture of an athlete with that shoe on or using that shoe, you can suddenly put someone on the court in a Knicks game in Madison Square Garden with a Knicks uniform on and those Nike shoes on their feet, and they can be playing in a Knicks game. So, I mean, you can architect an experience that is completely, as you say, alien, right? Technology. And thinking much more expansively, really, about what a brand experience could be I think is the future. And that comes with it, all of the technology aspects of how you represent brands within that kind of visual or 
3D space, right? That's right. It's like the iPhone. When the App Store came out, that led a whole segment of new jobs. Like, And it's really popular. Revolution, yeah. Revolution. And the same is happening in the next two years. We're going to see... Well, I'm saying two years, but, you know, it could be shorter or longer. You know, people need to become useful. Otherwise, they're going to find themselves without a job. So that's like, I'm like the the prophet of the future. You Everyone are. become more useful, thus says the Lord. <laughs> well, that is, that's a big, expansive statement. So I'm going to ask you a very big, expansive question. I always end my podcast interviews with a question of my guests. Do you have a personal mantra or a manifesto that you try to live your life by, Will? Yeah, I try to live by, um, don't worry about the things you can't control. That's the main one. I'll, I'll go with that one. Because you can worry about the things that you can control. Like, I can't control how many YouTube videos I get or uh, views I get on YouTube. But I control what video I put out and how I do it and how many I put out. Yeah. So, you know, if you just follow the system, you know, you'll get the 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 goal at the end is, you know, fame for some people. Mine is just, you know, I want to help as many people as possible and, you know, sh- take a beginner to professional just by my channel. Like, yeah. um. And I can't force them to do that, but I can control what I give them and I can control how I respond to certain situations. So yeah, just worry about what you can control. Love it. Love it. That's awesome. So Will, where is the best place I know people can find you on YouTube and Instagram, but where do you want people to find you? Where should they go if they want to experience Will? Uh, just, just YouTube. Just type my name in. I've, it's, <laughs> it, I, I don't have like a link or any snazzy thing. Just if you want to find me, type logo design in and I'll pop up right there. <laughs> See, that's that's pretty impressive. If you type, you're not even Will's name. You type logo design in and Will's going to pop up. We'll also have all his links in the, in the show notes. So if you want to find his channel or his website or his Instagram, it'll be there. So Will Patterson, thanks so much for joining us on the Brand Design Masters podcast. I really appreciate it. It was so much fun talking to you. Uh, thank you. For, it's nice to be here. And thanks everyone for listening. If you'd like to help support the Brand Design Masters podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, if you want to stay up to date on all our content, products, courses, and live video shows, head over to philipvandusen.com slash muse and sign up for the Brand Muse newsletter. That's where we share all the latest news, resources, articles, books, and videos that we recommend to help you build and improve your creative practice, personal brand, and business. That's philipvandusen.com slash muse, M-U-S-E. Thanks again for listening. Bye for now.